Hi, everyone. Welcome to our very first Mainspring Family Wellness podcast episode of 2022. Wow. Happy New Year. Yeah, (laughs) woohoo is right. Uh, Jenna, how were your holidays? They were good. They were really relaxing. We got to get away for a little bit and then uh, just have a good time with family. And um, yeah, so how about you? It was it was good. It was good. We uh, somehow dodged uh, COVID and were able to take some fun trips and be with family. Um, and yeah, it's it's not it's not easy to be out and about and traveling right now with COVID. You just never know what what's going to happen. Uh, very true. In fact, I actually got Omicron myself a couple yeah. weeks ago, yeah. and <clears throat> I still have a little bit of a dry cough. Yeah. Um, but I was vaccinated, so I had you know, pretty minimal issues. However, a mm-hmm. uh, little bit of a heaviness kind of to my chest mm-hmm. when I breathe, even though I just had more sinus issues, no wacky headaches or fevers or anything. You're still feeling it in your chest. I think I am. Yeah, yeah. a little bit and a little tired. Yeah. You know, I don't feel like my full 100% life force. That is for sure. So, you know, if you haven't gotten your booster yet, I highly suggest you do that because my husband did get it, his booster, yep. and he was COVID-free. Yeah. You know, around me for the whole whole yeah. uh, 10 days of it. Yeah. Good good PSA. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we keep getting the, the exposure notices from school. And I just, you know, I feel like you're, we're constantly testing everybody, just constantly wondering. Uh, are your kids feeling anxious about COVID? No, I don't think they really are. But I do think the big lesson out of this past four weeks, though, is definitely have those COVID tests on hand. Yes. With the government offering yeah. four free tests, you know, sign up, yep. get them, have them on hand, because at some point you are going to have to test yourself if you haven't already. That's right. And test yourself several times. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I've seen up Mike a little bit of... Um, Anxiety, not so much that they're anxious about COVID. It's just the constant unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, they get a notice that they've been around exposed to somebody at school, and you're just, you know, oh, I got to hold my breath until Wednesday when I when I take my test to see if I'm positive or not. So um, anyway, it just it's this is a really timely conversation talking about anxiety because I feel like everyone is. Uh, highly anxious at the moment in regards to COVID. We're going to actually have a really productive conversation for today because we have our very special guest for this episode, Josh Soto, who's a marriage and family therapist. And he's also on, um, uh, works with us over at Mainspring Family Wellness. And he is a child and adolescent and young adult uh, specialist. So he's going to be chatting with us about anxiety, specifically anxiety with children. All right. Well, let's get started. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parents' Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Are you ready, Josh? Yeah, thank you for having me today. (laughs) Welcome. Glad to be with you. Yeah, welcome. So, Josh, uh, you're a licensed marriage family therapist, Mm -hmm. uh, and you specialize in helping children and adolescents overcome 
uh, overwhelming anxiety, low self-esteem, and adjusting to changes at school and at home, right? Correct, yeah. Um, is there anything I'm missing? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you pretty much you summarized it uh, very nicely. Yeah, I, I do work with kids who have experienced um, changes in their lives, whether it comes from you know changes in their family system of their parents deciding to separate or divorce, whether they're going through other changes, which includes, you know, entering into adolescence. Uh, it could be anything from them moving from where they used to go to school and adjusting to entering a new school or mm-hmm. middle school or high school even. And just all the changes that come with adolescence and really seeking out that sense of belonging and acceptance from your peers. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be a therapist working with children and anxiety? <laughs> Okay, well, that's a story. Is it? I'm ready. (laughs) So going to graduate school, there was always a big emphasis on getting as much experience as you can. And one of the things that my instructors um, and mentors always encouraged me to do was um, getting your child family hours. Mm -hmm. And so when we were applying to different sites for our practicum or internship, those were the areas where I knew I needed to get some good experience in. And so uh, they placed me in um, school settings, working in schools. And so that was really my starting point and getting to work with, with kids of various ages through elementary school and uh, even middle school. They had me going to a couple of different sites. Oh, I mean, I, those are some of my favorite memories when I was getting my hours, too, because I was at a school site. And I liked because in marriage family therapy licensing, you have to get 500 hours of just working with children and families. That's a lot of hours. Yeah, yeah. And so for a lot of people, that's hard to gain those hours. So the school sites were ideal because your your clients are right there. Mm-hmm. They, they can't leave the <laughs> Everyone's going to be a on captive time. audience. A captive audience, exactly. <laughs> but it's also so rewarding because I always felt with kids, you know, they just blossomed with a little of that time mm-hmm. of like, I see you. I see what you're going through. And they could just make such uh, quick movements through a lot of what they were working through mm-hmm. in the school. Yeah. And then from there, I um, also spent some time working in a residential program with um, kids from 12 to 17 years of age, uh, working through issues such as um, conflicts at home, oppositional defiance, um, maybe some high-risk behaviors such as self-harming or um, thoughts of harming themselves. And so that was also a really great experience, a lot of exposure to different types of issues that come up with with, um, preteens and and adolescents and stuff that also involves family systems. And tough cases, too. Yeah, Yeah. tough cases. You learn a lot of good lessons there in being a clinician. So, Josh, what are you seeing out there right now, um, you know, as it relates to kids and anxiety you know, the pressure, Where the, where's the pressure and the anxiety coming from? Is it COVID? Is it school, home, sports, all of the above? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that, right? All of the above. I mean, the kids that I'm working with, I hear a lot of there's a need for acceptance and approval from from their peer group. Mm-hmm. I think as you enter into your, you know, your preteens, your, your teen years, that becomes so much more important. And that wanting a sense of belonging and feeling accepted. Mm-hmm. And so whether they have that sense of belonging through extracurricular activities like being involved in sports or even now, nowadays, it's online. Yeah, right. <laughs> Getting together and feeling a part of a group uh, on these in these multiplayer game formats mm-hmm. that are going on. 
Yeah, what do you think about all that? There, there's pros and cons, I think, okay. to to any child uh, engaging in in online gaming, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it it can keep you engaged and and connected, mm-hmm. but without some form of of oversight or supervision, sometimes kids feel unfiltered. Yeah, and mm-hmm. saying things that sometimes can go in a negative direction. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I've done, I've heard um, kids just really open up about how they feel excluded hmm. or sometimes there's negativity. You know, there's a pecking order that can sometimes occur in school yeah. that then follows outside of school and it follows them home into these online multiplayer platforms. It's interesting that you say that because I recall someone that I worked with a while back and it was online gaming that felt like it was the only place he could be himself. Because at school, he often felt very rejected. He was bullied. He wasn't really understood. But once he was a part of that team and he had an an avatar that had all these different skills and tool sets, he felt like he had something to offer. And it became something that he just really hyper-focused on so much that then his academics really started going to the wayside. He was failing out of a bunch of classes hmm. because his significance came so much from his game time. You know, like he didn't want to let down his team. They were relying on him. And, uh, yeah, his grades really suffered. The, the family ultimately had to just shut it all down. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's an addictive component to it too, right? I mean, the, the dopamine, the feelings they get oh, from, absolutely. from the games. It's, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of an overwhelming, you know, thing as a parent because you're like, do I let my when do you let your kid have that? How much do you? I mean, I don't know what the what the rules are. I don't even know what the right thing to do is. You know, it's tricky. Yeah, I think the moderation piece is really important, yeah. right? When it comes to the screen time with our kids, it's just a lot of times parents, you know, they may not be watching it enough though. Yeah, or they think because if you have some kids that are just really sneaky. I mean, I've had a few recently that parents are asleep. They know where it's locked up. They know where the oh, key wow. is to go get it unlocked. You know, and then they're finding the kids at like two in the morning playing. Oh my! Yeah. You know? Wow. I have a niece and nephew, and they're little MacGyvers. They uh, <laughs> <laughs> they know how to get what they need when they want it, and mm-hmm. they are way more tech savvy than their parents or, or I am. That, that amazes me too. That is true. That also these kids are being introduced to you know this technology at a, such an early age that they just quickly learn it, they pick it up, and they just navigate through it. So and they know more than we do. So. Most of the time. <laughs> but I think this, the technology that we're kind of talking about often becomes like a coping skill, mm-hmm. right? They're using it as a coping skill for something else that probably has some kind of undertone of anxiety. You know what? Thank you for, for bringing that up because, yeah, gaming, online gaming can become a distraction. Hmm. Distraction is the most commonly used coping skill to deal with anxiety or deal with depression. Um, and I try to use... Um, this worksheet I found online where it just breaks down all the different types of coping skills. And it usually starts with distraction because hmm. that, is, that is the go-to coping skill that everybody across the board uses. You know, we come home, we, we put on the TV. Yeah. Or we kind of just check out, we go on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, we do something. It doesn't have to be technology-based. It could be, you know, just going for a walk could be calling a friend. Anything you can do to give your mind just a short break from whatever it is that's very stressful or that's overwhelming. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're saying that actually to use distraction is a positive, probably within moderation? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think when anything becomes used so much or solely relying on distraction as a way to cope, that's where you need to broaden the type of coping skills that you do have or that you can learn. And so whatever you're using, and as, as parents or as adults, I think it's we're in a good position to be a, a role model or an example for whatever it is we do that we find helpful for us, that's healthy, productive, to manage our own stress, and try and show that to, to our kids. Model that for them. That right. makes sense. Right. Because I'm, I'm also, you know, as adults, if we don't have a good handle on our own anxiety, that can, um, kids pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they naturally um, become attuned to that anxiety. And they themselves might feel it if they feel there's stress going on in the family. Then they, too, end up feeling that stress as well. Yeah. And I guess especially if you're watching your parents that are constantly on their phones or in front of the TV and that's their way of relaxing, that's 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 what they're seeing. That's So that you know doesn't feel so foreign to go play a video game or go online to, to distract themselves. COVID was a really good example of that when I remember when the we first went into lockdown, I saw like there were videos that were popping up on social media of families that were trying to frame it in a non-threatening, non-scary way for their kids. Mm-hmm. I saw one family on their video, they kind of made up a mock-up of um, parts of the Caribbean ride. They were like sliding down the stairs and they were doing make-believe. They were doing all these activities because they had to be hunkered down yeah. together in their own little social bubble. So they were doing that. I think once it became prolonged or there was an overarching sense of we don't know what's coming next, mm-hmm. where that's where, again, anxiety or stress with adults can sometimes be seen or become attuned to from from our kids. What do you think about, you know, in, in that sense, of if you have the news on or the kids are hearing what might be going on during that time or a stressful time for the world, do you think it's better to, to shield them from that information? I think it's important for us to stay informed, mm-hmm. but we also need to be mindful of how much news we're, we're consuming and mm-hmm. then what impact is that having on us or our kids. Okay. And so there's a way of kind of like, Digesting what we're seeing, mm-hmm. not panicking, but having a conversation with our kids is this is what it's going to look like when you go to school. You know, there's going to be some adjustments. Um, one of the helpful things I found in, when I was working in a school setting when COVID started, I relied on um, some news segments. I think it was called Nightly News for Kids. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gave updates and kids got to ask questions to health experts, um, you know, medical doctors, scientists. And so they would... They would explain it, um, not over-explain it, but just making it accessible mm-hmm. and communicating, all right, so these are some changes you might see at school. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have to do activities that, where you keep a, a certain amount of distance from your friends. And that's not going to be that way forever, but it's going to be that way for maybe for a period of time. But, you know, we can make the, we can make the best of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so trying to keep a positive attitude, trying to um, be an example of maintaining calm, even if, though we don't always feel calm. Yeah. yeah, I think I think though there are some of our kids that are just a little more prone to being anxious, mm-hmm. right? Maybe because they're also they just have a disposition towards it, or yeah. their home environment has more anxiety. So I think those kiddos, when you're hit with something like COVID, you know, then they get more concerned about germs or 
wanting to be at home and still be in um, virtual school compared to other kids. I've noticed kind of um, like a, a bit of a sadness, like mm-hmm. for, you know, of just like a loss of like a loss of connection. Like we're just not able to like go give a friend a, a side hug or, you know, give the high five or go wash your hands right after. You know, mm-hmm. there's just this like additional anxiety that's kind of threaded into our interactions. Yeah. I would like to talk about that. Just, you know, can you share with us, Josh, a little bit about um, how children can have a genetic disposition to anxiety? I think it's important to look at, like, family history, Mm -hmm. whether it's um, your parents, grandparents, and looking at, you know, how how does our family function with unexpected events, life events? From our memory, can we trace that there's been high levels of anxiety and how was that managed in a healthy way or in an unhealthy, unproductive way? And so, I mean, unless you're, you know, consulting with your pediatrician or you you have actual like medical history to look at, we can kind of examine those relationships that we've had with our family members to see if maybe there is a component there that's inherited. Women who are pregnant and who experienced uh, anxiety during their pregnancy I think these are like long-term studies that found that their child was more likely to exhibit anxiety themselves. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's in the first two trimesters yeah. that anxiety is passed down. Right. Yeah. So if you if you know that, I mean, what 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 can you do to help your child navigate their life, knowing that they have a disposition for anxiety? Well, that's the amazing thing about children and, and teenagers, right? Their their brains are still developing, so nothing is, is set firmly in place yet. I mean, their fir- their brains aren't firmly firmly developed until they're, what, 26 years old? Mm-hmm. That's about the age. Yeah. And so there's a lot of opportunities to rewire or build new neural pathways in the brain to learn new healthy habits, new ways of, of coping, mm-hmm. reframing an experience to kind of try and see the positive, which doesn't mean to ignore the negative challenges that come along the way. But how do we persevere? How do we become resilient? Mm-hmm. What examples are there that might be right in front of them that they can see? Whether it's in the shows, the storytelling that they digest, there's such a rich tapestry out there, positive examples that we can pull from that can provide that example. And of course, the most valuable examples that we can pull from are the people that we know, family, friends, peers. Um, Positive role models, if you are involved in extracurricular activities where you can, there's a form of expression, whether it's creative, artistic expression, or if you're involved in sports and you've got a lot of energy, sometimes nervous energy, being mm-hmm. able to like get that out, mm-hmm. right? That catharsis that we as adults can get easily by having a 20 to 30 minute conversation with a friend. Let me tell you about my day at work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just getting that off my chest, I feel better. Doesn't necessarily resolve the, what the core of the issue is, but I do feel like a weight is lifted once I do talk about it mm-hmm. and get it off my chest. Mm-hmm. Kids can can do that to a, to a degree, but sometimes in doing play therapy, it's where they get to express themselves. Talk to us about play therapy. What does that look like? So one of the, one of the phrases that really stuck with me uh, in graduate school and even beyond was a saying, and sorry if I, I butcher the phrasing of it, is that Play is a child's language and toys or games are the words. Hmm. Because sometimes depending on their their age and their level of development and their maturity, they can't always 
they don't know. They haven't maybe developed the full vocabulary to describe what that feeling is or, or discuss it, what it is. And so when you bring them into a room and you have a room full of different things for them to express themselves in, whether it's toys, whether it's a game, whether it's storytelling, that is a medium of which then they can really open up and you can see them working through things. Hmm. That's really nice. It is. It's a, it's a really, it's almost like um, they're, they're playing, but they're getting the therapy at the same time. I mean, it's maybe, I don't know. Well, I was thinking too that so many of our kiddos are not so verbal. You know, and so it's really yes. in the nonverbal. So that play is just such a great way to express yourself, to express what's really happening deeply from a deep place. What are some other, um, you know, ther- therapies that you would use in um, your sessions with kids? Like if you didn't use play therapy, do you use CBT or talk therapy, yeah. depending on what the kid needs? Yeah, it's really looking at a person's individual needs. You know, some kids are very precocious. They're, they like to talk. Mm-hmm. I, that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other kids are more on the quiet side. They're more reserved. And so it may take them more gradual time to feel comfortable and open up. Or you find that they're more apt to open up in a different way other than talking, another form of expression. And so sometimes I, I might utilize um, child-centered uh, play therapy. Mm-hmm where you bring them in and it's an open invitation for them to explore the room and see, like, what is it that they're gravitating towards, whether it's coloring. And then, you know, what are they coloring? What are the Im- What is the imagery that's there? You know, and what can they tell you? Like, if there is anything that they want to share about what they've drawn or their selection of, of toys. And this can be done through sand tray mm-hmm. therapy. Um, there's also ways of incorporating CBT into play therapy. And so um, doing some training and work, some workshops, I learned that there's non-directive play therapy and then there's structured, you know, directive play therapy well, where you introduce a particular game or activity that might have some skills built into it where they can learn by either role-playing scenarios or just in the manner of which the activity is set up where they can, again, identify things that they might relate to or maybe similar to things that they're working through. And also building a skill at the same time. Hmm. And so much of um, you know progress or growth in therapy comes from the rapport that you build with kids. Providing them that safe space where they can talk about things that maybe they aren't ready yet to talk about with their parents mm-hmm. or with their peers. Do you have any success stories when you used those techniques that you could share with us? Yeah. So one one memory that always sticks out in my mind was when I was working in a school. And this is back when I was an intern before it got redefined as associate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a while. Uh, there was I remember a little girl who had separation anxiety and could not make it into the classroom without mm. throwing up. Oh, mm. wow. And so it was like, wow. When I remember as an intern, like when I was assigned that case, I'm like, wow, how am I what can I do? How, how can I work with this with this little girl? And so. We, it took almost about the entire school year, but we got it to the point slowly, and progress can be slow and gradual, but we got it to the point where she could be dropped off at school, and I would walk with her to a certain point, but then we ended up drawing back on that to the point where she could be dropped off and walk to her class on her own. 
And so when I finished that academic year, I ended up hearing back from the principal that her her issue was resolved, even after mm-hmm. I had left, because sometimes you don't always get to see right what happens right. what after. happens afterwards. But you know, the principal had reached out to me, let me like, hey, did you know that little girl you worked with? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever you were, we're doing with her, it worked because we see a night and day difference between how she started the school year to where she is now. She stopped throwing up. Yeah. She stopped having that separation anxiety. And I, from what I can remember, um, there's just some worrying about what's going to happen with mom. Is she going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Worrying about their parent, not necessarily Mm -hmm. even about themselves. Yeah. You know, and and it varies. It varies um, with kids where their worries come from, where it stems from. Mm -hmm. You know, I just kind of want to circle back to an earlier thought we were having about shielding our kids. Mm -hmm. So if we have a child that is prone to anxiety, like we're we're recognizing they they get anxious, they have maybe some even intrusive thoughts or they bring things up repetitively. How much shielding do you do you do with a child like that? Because I know for a lot of parents that that have children Mm -hmm. in in this like this. They get really concerned about letting their child know anything because of what if the blow up happens or a big tantrum or I just it's like we should just tell her right right before. But then it's a little, you know, jarring, I think, sometimes if you don't do enough front loading or they get worried that they front loaded too much and then they're hearing about it over and over again from the child. What are your thoughts on that? I, th- I think there can be positive aspects to like priming a child for what to expect. For example, if um, if they're going to a place where there's a lot of people and there's some social anxiety there, it's like explaining like, oh, you know, we're gonna be going to a place. Here's you know probably what's gonna what you're gonna see when you get there, mm-hmm. and it's gonna be okay. And walking them through that, and, but also giving them room to kind of express what are what are your concerns, being reassuring. But also not promising that they're not going to experience any anxiety. You know, we want to be realistic with how we reassure our kids. Can you share a little more about that? What do you mean when you say we want to be realistic about how we reassure our kids? Well, you don't want to make um, unrealistic promises that nothing bad is going to happen, you know, because we don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, whether, you know, someone trips and falls, scrapes their knee whether there's a kid there that they might see that isn't so nice, mm-hmm. right? But we we always want to be reassuring that there are, there's going to be a lot of people there if you go in, into a group of people and that once you start talking to people, you might find that there are people that have the same interests that you that you have. Maybe that's also where you, you do a little more scaffolding or like a – you know, A plans and B plans, contingency mm-hmm. strategies mm-hmm. on like, well, what if we do run into that person? Yeah. How will you handle that? Mm-hmm. Right. And you do a lot of practicing, kind of exposing them to the idea even before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. Some, I mean, I think that's an empowering thing for kids too to have, you know, like going back to what you're talking about, knowing what's going on or maybe I, I speaking from experience, I think that, um, when I don't tell my kids things because I think they might become anxious and I wait till the last minute, it actually backfires. So for for me, it always seems to help to lay that all out in advance and normalize it and discuss it. And Yeah, I totally yeah. agree with don't you. Don't you think that they feel empowered with, with that information? You're like, okay, I have some control over this. See, I think kids with uh, anxious symptoms often needs more certainty. 
Yes. They love the routines. Yes. And they don't necessarily want to deviate from that. So you have to do a lot of front loading. Front loading. If you're going to... Um, if you're going to have to make a change in order for them to be more flexible or learn to be flexible. Mm-hmm. I agree. Right? If you just spur something on them too quickly, then I think it, it can be really jarring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, system. structure and consistency are, are what help kids feel safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if they complain, oh, this is boring, it's the same thing. No, but they like that consistency. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I do, too. <laughs> um, so, Josh, do you have some some strategies that you can share with parents um, that they can use to help their children navigate anxious feelings as they come up? Kind of a toolbox, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think um, one of the first things they can do is to be patient. Mm-hmm. Also to invite their discussion of their feelings, whatever that may be, and validate. You know, don't dismiss it or try to minimize it, but actually acknowledge like, okay, I see that you're you're having a hard time there. Can you tell me what is it you're feeling? Okay, you're feeling and reflect reflect what you're hearing. I I hear you saying that you're feeling kind of anxious about going to a place with a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Or you're nervous about the first day of school, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're nervous about an outcome of you know taking a test. Okay, I understand that. I hear you. So validation can be a very important thing because it, it leaves us with a feeling of we're being heard. Mm-hmm. Right. In your mind, then, is anxiety always geared towards something in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Worrying about something that hasn't happened yet or what might happen. Mm-hmm. And so when you're inviting them to kind of say, like, all right, what is it, what is it exactly that you're worried about, right? The, the who question, the what questions, how, try, I mean, you can ask why, but try to be more reserved with how often you ask why questions because sometimes that can people, leave people feeling a little bit more on the defensive mm-hmm. or closed off, like maybe they're feeling judged. Mm-hmm. Once you've developed a rapport and there's a feeling of safety there, you can start asking you know, more why questions. But it's more about how are you feeling, what are you feeling, you know, those kind of leading questions that open a discussion and an expression of feeling. It's like you're, you're just you're getting curious with them and kind of letting them lead the way. I like that. Josh, can you think of some other things to add to the toolbox for us parents when with our anxious prone kids? Yeah, I think it's it's good to look at nutrition. How uh, so? Well, looking at you know what are your kids snacking on? Are they eating like a lot of processed foods? Are they getting enough water? Mm. Yeah, staying hydrated, I think, is really key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if their you know, their level of sugar consumption. I'm, there's so many, so much food or sugar packed into our foods. Um, so cutting back on that, trying to introduce more fruits, more vegetables, and also uh, something I've noticed, at least um, with the kids I've worked with and kids in my own family, it's limiting screen time before bed. They are mm. so glued to their screens. I know there's a lot that you can do on your phone mm-hmm. or on your tablet, but at a certain point, you know, limiting that an hour or two before bed, whether it's giving them a book to read or just kind of um, starting to wind down. Yeah. Whether it's playing soft music or making sure that they're taking a nice, you know, relaxing shower or bath, whatever their preference is, mm-hmm. but just doing anything that's relaxing. Like a nighttime ritual that you mm-hmm. stay consistent with. Yeah, consistency, again, especially if you're trying to develop healthy habits, mm-hmm. you know, holistically, the, the whole approach. 
mind, and body. Mm-hmm. You know, I would also add for the, the anxious prone child, you have to really stick to your bedtime. As much as you like to think that, oh, you know, we can just go ahead and go a little more, there's often a real cost that's going to hit. So you do have to hold to those boundaries just because it helps them manage their bodies better. Yeah. And I think the the less you sleep, the the more triggered you are by anxiety and depression. I mean, it's a huge factor. Sleep is so key. Yeah. How can parents assess, you know, with their kids, (coughs) pardon me, to determine whether they need to seek professional professional assistance, like to see a counselor like yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, usually when you see a, a change in their mood, their behavior, and it starts to impact, for example, if you see like there's um, they're pulling away from you, or they're pulling away from things that they would ordinarily get enjoyment out of, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's sports or any other extracurriculars. Um, if you see that there's a change in their sleeping patterns, they're sleeping less, they're just more irritable, they're not, you know, their usual energetic selves. Usually, like, once you start seeing all those things, it's okay, this is a sign. These are signs that are building up over time that something's changing. Mm-hmm. There, there's been a change that I'm seeing, and not just me, that other people are noticing too. And sometimes they'll tell you, um, and if they're not telling you, you can see it. Is would they exhibit signs of depression probably too? Yeah. I mean, usually anxiety and depression, they those are coexisting um, disorders that, that are often experienced together. Mm-hmm. You might see one that's more prominent than, than the other, but oftentimes you, you do see both. I think you might also see some sleep pattern changes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes for, for little kids, you might see enuresis. Um, as another mm-hmm. bedwetting mm-hmm. is another issue after they've already been, um, you know, trained. Uh, I'm trying to think of some some other things that might show. Uh, oftentimes, too, like certain thoughts that just seem to come up over and over again, and they're bringing them up. I was to say obsessive uh, thoughts. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if, um, if parents are going to work, you know, they're worried about their their parent. Oh, is, is, are they okay? Like asking more than once if, if their parent is all right. Um, are they coming home? Expressing some kind of worry that sometimes you're not quite sure, like where is this coming from? Um, if it hasn't been expressed before, but it's starting to come up more and more now, then that's also a sign. Um, asking repeatedly, like them seeking reassurance from you. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing people online and in person right now? Uh, yeah. So I I, I – <laughs> That's one of the things, the amazing things about COVID was that uh, it taught me that things I never thought I would ever do, I'm doing now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, like, do you see a difference between the two platforms? I mean, is there, is it more positive or is there positive outcomes if you're in person versus being online with a, with a child particularly? Uh, this has been something I've been uh, curious about. Um, I, I, there are pros and cons. I myself prefer in person. That's just mm-hmm. my my preference. But I, I do see that you know in terms of like accessibility, sometimes people have limitations mm-hmm. with their schedules or commutes. Um, that sometimes their comfort level is to stay is to be at in the home. If, again, if it pertains to COVID or, or other things. Right, but what about for children online? For children online, yeah. I mean, my it's so my, difficult, right? My preference is is always in person. Okay. I mean, there are um, 
there are platforms out there I've had to get creative with with how to be engaging with 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 kids online doing telehealth and providing um, some of the same things that I might do with them in person. It's just um, yeah, it's it's such an adjustment. That's why I yeah. love that at Mainspring we offer in person yes counseling that you know. Telehealth is, is still an option if you really need it. But I think really with kids, like, you really need to meet in person. Yeah. In Hopefully my, we're moving back toward, towards that at the moment. Can we so. also talk a little more about performance anxiety? Mm-hmm. You know, we live in, in an area where things are very competitive, whether it's no, our sports. No, they're not. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> whether it's our sports or, you know, academics. How do you speak to children about performance anxiety? Mm. Well, it's it's acknowledging like what they enjoy of the sport that they're engaging in and also where they might feel pressure. And so, I mean, if you're working with um, a preteen that can, you know, think more abstractly or communicate more abstractly, that or teenagers can give more voice and articulating, you know, what they feel going into a game. You know, or if, if they're fearful of disappointing their coach or their parent, you know, oftentimes they'll they'll give voice to that. Or if they show that there's a, a lack of enjoyment and so they're pulling away from something that they used to enjoy. All right, let's let's kind of sit with that and explore, you know, how long has that been going on for? Mm-hmm. And when you are with your team, is there any difference in how you feel when you're doing the activity versus afterwards? You know, whether you win a game, lose a game, how do you feel about how you did and also how the team did? So you're trying to really focus on their thought life. Yeah. Like where is the trigger? You're mm-hmm. trying to define it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about um, medications for children and anxiety? Where do you stand on that? And What I think is helpful is to consult first with, a you know, their, their pediatrician, kind of see what I always look at is, the frequency, duration, and intensity of their anxiety or, or their depression. How is it impacting them? And to try and first work on building up their, their coping skills. You know, it, if it's impacting them so much that they're losing sleep and you're seeing a sharp decline, I think it's always helpful. I always recommend anyway. Like, I, and that's one of the questions I ask is, when is the last time your, your child saw their pediatrician? You know, do you need a referral to talk to a psychiatrist, to consult with a psychiatrist, so that you can make the most informed decision with what your child's needs are. And, you know, as a parent, like, what are your own personal views on on using prescribed medications? You know, whatever the medication might be uh, or the potential side effects, looking at, again, the pros and cons, because each child is different. Yeah, I think if children have a really hard time implementing the coping skills that you're trying to teach Mm -hmm. like they just don't have access to them Mm -hmm. because they're dysregulating so quickly and so regularly then it does seem like a referral could be very helpful just to get more of a a better pulse on it Mm -hmm. for kids yeah because sometimes when they are prescribed medications it can reduce the symptoms and i always make sure to like explain this to to a parent that it's addressing the symptoms it's not resolving the core Mm -hmm. issue so by this, by the symptoms being addressed, we can work on building on the foundation of coping skills, so that as they learn it, as they learn, as they are able to implement it, then again, with consulting with your your psychiatrist, they can look at okay, they're doing good for this amount of time. We can then look at 
um, scaling back on that dosage mm -hmm. or switching to a different medication if, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. But then the ultimate goal is to, I would, I would think, ideally to be off the medication and to be able to use your coping skills that are with you for life if you're practicing it. And like anything else, you have to practice, you know, because once you learn it, you apply it. It's like learning to ride a bike or tying your shoes. You never forget it. It becomes second nature. Or I think I've heard before, um, what is it, 21 days to form a habit, mm -hmm. 90 days to make it part of your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. mm. So it's almost like it, it could help sort of get over the hump, so to speak, like just to kind of till you can get make some progress in therapy or with a, a professional. Yeah. Get to a point where it's manageable for you, mm -hmm. where you feel empowered, that you feel that, you know what, stress and anxiety, they're not things that ever go away completely. Mm. Again, it's, it's something that to be realistic about. But we can learn a sense of control. We mm -hmm. can learn how to manage those feelings when they do come up, when we do start to feel overwhelmed by something, something that's outside of our control. Mm-hmm. Because we can't control, you know, COVID or the variants. We can't control people being accepting or excluding us. But we can control how we learn from it and how we, how, we, how we react to it, how we respond to it. Yeah, I think you're, you bring up a really good point, too, that our kids need to be practicing mm. and just like life practice. Mm -hmm. And why do we have a higher, you know, percentage of anxiety now more than ever for children I think because often we are raising our children so they have to do less. Mm. There's not as much expected of them. We expect performance, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of excelling, but we're not necessarily saying, hey, you know, you've got dishes that you got to take out or, you know, we need to go maybe visit a sick grandparent and walk through that or just kind of life issues that kind of come up that start to build more understanding of what ha what's happening in the world and I think working through tougher feelings. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of also learning how to build, you know, being a little more anxiety-proof. It's, it's that resiliency factor. I would think you would both agree, too, that um, teaching them the practice of mindfulness yes. would be, you know, is so advantageous as they're growing up, too, and navigating anxiety and depression. And I know a lot of schools are have incorporated into their curriculums, and I think that's such a step in the right direction for the way we address anxiety in kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it kind of brings us kind of circling back to the whole technology mm -hmm. and different platforms because now mindfulness is becoming much more accessible. You have, I think, um, what is it, the Headspace mm -hmm, app. Yeah. You have Calm. Mm -hmm. Insight Timer. There's a lot of Yeah, there's a few. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of good programs out there that are accessible and helping to teach kids how to understand their moods. Mm -hmm. I think there's a class dojo that's um, a good free online platform mm -hmm. that I've used in, mm -hmm. in telehealth. Um, that's been helpful <laughs> to, yeah. to try and compensate for the things that I can't provide in person. Right. You know, you really embrace the things that are there because it's it can be a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a really positive um, thing to to teach your kids to do daily if they can when they feel have those anxious feelings coming on totally well this has been such a great conversation josh we appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom about anxiety 
and children. Yeah, and you know, Josh Soto is available over at Mainspring Family Wellness to see children and young adults mm-hmm. and um, adolescents as well. Mm-hmm. And you're uh, you're at Mainspring on Fridays and Saturdays. Yeah. So it's always so good to see you and to have you be a part of the Mainspring family. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Well, that was extremely helpful as a parent who has seen some anxiety tendencies in my own kids. Mm -hmm. It's really nice to walk away with a toolbox and really kind of know what to look for and how to handle potentially anxiety-provoking situations for my kids. Yeah, and we're just so lucky to have Josh with us at Mainspring. Very lucky. You know, and if you think you or your child would really benefit from talking to to Josh, visit MainspringFamilyWellness.com and get in touch with us. Our, our email is info at MainspringFamilyWellness.com. And please check our website frequently as we have a lot of exciting plans coming down the pipeline for 2022. And we have our um, the continuation of our Conscious Parenting Conscious classes. Conscious Parenting. Woohoo. Um, we have workshops for people for uh, divorce recovery workshops yes. and people for people in need of support during a divorce. Um, and we are offering array of bodywork services, uh, Reiki, uh, hypnosis. Yes. Um, and can I just throw a quick shout out? Like, Kristen, you are really excellent at Reiki. <laughs> Thank you. We, we've had so many people just really benefiting from time with you, and I oh. just think it's such a great blend of how we're offering counseling, but also body work, and now clinical hypnosis, which yeah. we're totally jazzed about, but that's for another time. We are. <laughs> yes, that is for another time. Yes. And the Reiki is is actually very helpful to to help with anxiety coping skills yeah. as well. So. But as always, thanks for listening and follow us on Instagram at Mainspring Family for up-to-date information on everything we're offering. And we'll be back in a few weeks with another brand new episode. We are going to be tackling the heavy topic of divorce with the help of Diana Valenzuela and Jenny Hasseth, who are both um, amazing women that are offering support for those going through divorce in Orange County. Bye-bye, everyone. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in.